Welcome to the Looper Podcast, a show where we make the rounds with interesting golf personalities. Here's your host, Eric Payton. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in today. As always, I'm super excited for today's episode. Uh, it's uh, with two guests. We've got Mike Gonzalez and Bruce Devlin. Uh, they're co-hosts of a podcast called For the Good of the Game. And Bruce is a former PGA Tour player who had a long, really great career um, on tour playing professional golf. So they've got a lot of really great stories. They're connecting um, each episode on their podcast with a different uh, pro golfer, who's in the World Golf Hall of Fame or a major championship winner um, and just hearing their stories. And so it was really fun to chat with them. Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further delay, here's the episode. Well, I'm Mike Gonzalez, uh, co-host of the podcast for the good of the game, co-hosting with my good friend Bruce Devlin. And I have uh, been involved in the golf industry for quite a few years. wasn't my original intention, but uh, I played professionally on the PGA Tour for about twenty years, and uh, and then uh, Mr. Gonzalez decided to talk me into doing a podcast, and I guess that's why we're here today. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me again today, guys. Uh, I've been really excited to, to talk with both of you uh, since we first connected and think you're doing a lot of a lot of cool things. Um, but I, the first question I always like to ask guests is, how did they start playing the game of golf? Uh, and Bruce, I guess we'll start with you on that one. Well, I like I uh, said uh, up front there, I never had in, any intentions of playing golf professionally. Uh, I was a... Uh, a field hockey player as a young man. Uh, and the reason for that was we had three Olympians in the little town I grew up uh, that were Olympians in, in the game of field hockey. So that was, the, you know, we had a lot of young teams around the little town that I lived in. And uh, then I, uh, I started to play golf after my father lost his arm in an automobile accident. And uh, my dad's the sort of guy that... Uh, he said, well, I'm looking for uh, somebody to come and continue to play with me, and you're the one. So that's how I got started playing golf. So it was, uh, it was a sort of a backdoor deal to get, get to play the game, but uh, obviously it's, it was probably the right move for me. Yeah. Now, was, did, did he play golf before the accident then, or was, was that kind of the thing that started his golf passion? No, he was a left-hander. Uh, uh, about a 20 handicapper and very interestingly uh, he never uh, when he when he decided to play golf again after the accident uh, he played four-handed which is as you all know is a very very difficult way to play golf but yeah he decided he was going to play four-handed and believe it or not he become a 14 handicapper playing four-handed with one arm oh so, wow that's pretty a, that's pretty impressive. Uh, Pretty interesting story about uh, about his uh, sojourn into the game of golf. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mike, how did you get started in golf? Well, before I answer, let me just mention for your listeners uh, who are interested in hearing more of that story, Paul Harvey, who uh, some of your older listeners will remember was quite famous uh, broadcasting out of Chicago with the rest of the story. And uh, your listeners can Google Paul Harvey, Bruce Devlin, and this is something I just came to know within the last week, but Paul actually did a story about Artie Devlin and his story of the, the auto accident, losing his arm, how Bruce came to the game. So uh, sort of interesting listening. Yeah. Uh, as for me, uh, you know, like probably you have heard, if you've listened to any of our episodes, most all of our guests learn the game of golf from their father. And uh, that's what happened with me at age eight, picked up the game. It was a little nine hole course in Pontiac, Illinois. And uh, my home course was down Southern Illinois, a little town called Salem. And again, like most of our guests, little nine hole course, no sprinkler systems, no bunkers, no professional, barely had a range, uh, had your own shag balls that you kept yourself. Uh, and uh, that's sort of how I just uh, picked up the game uh, as, as, a, as a young man and was quite passionate about it. Spent most of my summers on the golf course. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is it is interesting that most people uh have have this story of picking the game up from their dad and um my story is a little bit different. I actually sort of introduced the game to my dad. Um we still we still played and and uh but I don't think he ever beat me even from the first day I picked up a club, but he was a baseball player and um but just, you know, had a passion for whatever his kids had a passion for, but um so that's those are both interesting stories and uh I like how Bruce, it was, it was your second thing. It was, it was not your initial, uh, passion. And my understanding is that even playing on tour was a second career for you as well. Is that correct? Well, it, uh, originally it was, uh, it was my first career playing professional golf. And then, uh, then I was, uh, I had a meeting with a, uh, a, a group of guys at a golf club in Australia called the Lakes Golf Club, of which I was a, a country member and they knew I was coming back to the United States to play on the tour. And they said, you know something, Bruce, I don't know if you've heard or not, but our uh, state government has decided to run a freeway from the airport into the middle of Sydney. And they're going to come right through our golf course. So, uh, I need to, if you do it to look around at some of the American architects and, and make a recommendation for somebody that you think might be able to handle a freeway running through the golf course. So uh, I looked at I looked at some golf courses under construction, and I made a recommendation that they uh, talk to a guy by the name of Robert von Hagee. And one thing led to another, and then he and I got in the uh, the golf course architectural business and stayed as partners for a long time. And uh, then we split up and. And I continued into it, uh, doing it by myself. And interestingly, one of the one of the courses I did all by myself is the one where Mr. Gonzalez was what we call the benevolent dictator. Uh, I guess that's a better word for 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 the for being a president. But in the early days, that what we the guys that run the secession were called benevolent dictators. Uh, so uh, Mike, Mike ran uh, secession for, I guess, about five and a half years, and uh, we become close friends, and uh, he was the one that decided to uh, to uh, put the proposition to me to, to do this podcast. So yeah. it's now, been a great relationship. Bruce, I think, uh, I think Eric might have been alluding to your first real vocation, which was Master Plumber. Oh yeah, that that's probably what you were talking about, were that, you? That Sorry, is, Eric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounded like from the uh, the episodes that I listened to of your podcast, which, um, if it's not obvious to our guests already, everyone needs to go listen to because it's a very it's very very interesting. Um, you've got a lot of great guests on there, um, and so your your story of how you got into the game, um, is. It, and now I don't know if it was non-traditional for the time, but you know, a, a, it's different from a lot of the players today how they yeah. would eventually start playing professional golf. So, can you tell me a little bit how you made that jump, and what was it that um, that kind of made that that move possible? Well, what happened uh, after, like I said, after his accident, after my dad's accident, he wanted to play again, and I. I sort of got to playing uh, playing pretty good as a as an amateur, and uh, oh, it was uh, I, I I won a couple of little amateur tournaments, and then I I went away for a weekend and didn't get back to school until Tuesday morning, and my first class was with the principal of the college that I was going to and he said to me uh, Mr. Devlin you have you have, you're going to have to make a choice you're going to either have to continue to go play golf or you're going to stay here and do your studies so uh, I don't know whether it was the right thing to do or not so I packed my books up out of my desk <laughs> and I walked out of the classroom and went home <laughs> and and it just so happened that about half an hour after I got home, my dad come home to have a cup of morning tea with my mother. And he said, uh, what the hell are you doing? Here? <laughs> and I told him the story and he said, well, get into your room and put your overalls on and you can start working as a plumber. So uh, I become his apprentice and uh, 
I went through technical college as a plumber, become a master plumber, uh, stayed in business with my dad for uh, quite a long time. And we grew our plumbing business uh, on my master's license. Uh, you know, we had about 30, 30 odd people working for us. And then I came home for lunch one day and a guy by the name of Norman Von Neider, who you probably have heard of his name as a yep. guy that ended up being my coach, but he was sitting in my breakfast room with my wife. And, and I said to him, what, like my dad said to me, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And he said, well, I've come to convince you to turn around and start playing golf as a living. And that was, that was about four months after I'd won the Australian Open as an amateur. So that's how I got started in professional golf. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, moving over to Mike, what, when you were growing up, um, who were your golfing idols? Who were the people that you looked up to? You, you mean other than Bruce Devlin? Yeah. yeah well, that's, say that's kind of what I'm curious about. Is, is... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, growing up uh, – in the sixties, if you will, early mid sixties, as I was learning the game, uh, we had golf magazines and we had a, the occasional tournament on television, but I would say I learned most of my game just through observation and through reading magazines. I cut out the little one page illustrations of a particular tip or pointer. And Bruce, I'm sure remembers these quite well. And sure. oftentimes it featured Arnie or Jack, uh, showing you how to hit this pitch or this chip or whatever. And I had a whole notebook, scrapbook that I kept. And that was my little Bible. I didn't have any golf books. You know, a lot of our guests talk about Hogan's books that they studied as kids and so forth. I didn't have any books. I just had my little scrapbook of cutouts from either Golf Magazine or Golf Illustrated, probably at the time. And, uh, and, and because we didn't have a pro and we really didn't have any, what I would call real accomplished golfers uh, at our club, Although I did watch the good guys, uh, it was pretty much just learning uh, on my own. And of course, Arnold Palmer was my golf hero. I mean, uh, you know, he was always right up there with my father as, as uh, you know, one of my heroes uh, just because of who he was and how he conducted himself. And, you know, Bruce lived with that, right? I mean, he saw that firsthand. I did. Arnie's army, boy. Every time we went into it, we saw the army. Yeah, yeah. Now, who would have been your golfing idol growing up, Bruce? Uh, I read a lot about the American tour, obviously, when I when I got started. But uh, I, I would have to say that Norman von Neider was my idol uh, in the in the very early days. And then, uh, interestingly, my dad took me down to Sydney after I'd become reasonably accomplished at the game. To have Norman Vida, Von Neider look at my uh, golf swing and saw me hit some balls, and after that was over, he said to my father, he said, uh, uh, my suggestion to you, Mr. Devlin, is take your son back and let him keep being in the plumbing business because oh. this is not this is not the game for him. So, so that was sort of a that was sort of a bit of a rough time, really, when you think about it. But then later, and then of course. He ends up being my coach. Yeah, yeah. So, did you ever ask him, like, what was it that he saw in the in the that initial um, meeting that made him think you couldn't make it? And then how? What changed between those two? I, I did. You know something? I never asked him that question. Okay. Uh, 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 of course, you know when he when he talked me into turning pro, uh, we used to spend a lot of time together on the on the practice tee and. Uh, uh, I never had the, I never had the uh, the thought about even asking him. You know why why did he say that to my dad? Because he he'd obviously changed his mind, and uh, he was. Uh, he, I'm not sure even if you know, but I know Mike does. Norman von Neider was probably recognised as the greatest bunker player that ever played the game. He taught players like uh, myself and Crampton and David Graham and. Uh, Gary Player in particular, you know, he he spent a lot of time with Norman, and Norman's Norman's treatment was always uh, okay until you learn how to play this bunker shot. We're, we're not going anywhere, so he'd put you in a he'd put you in a bunker, and you'd have to stay there until you hold the shot. Oh wow! And then you could then you could get out of the bunker, yeah. but it was 
Just keep keep practicing until you get it right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Now you had a, a pretty impressive PGA career, um, professional career with eight PGA wins and many more international wins. Um, as you look back on your career, is is there something that really one of those wins or maybe a moment that really stands out as as particularly special or or memorable to you? Uh, probably. Uh... Probably winning at Colonial uh, because of my relationship with Mr. Hogan. Uh, when I first uh, when I first went to Augusta in uh, in 1962, uh, I was introduced to uh, Mr. Hogan by by Norman Van Nieder, interestingly enough, and and he asked Mr. Hogan, you know, would you play a practice round with this young friend of mine from Australia? And he said, absolutely, and. So my first practice round at Augusta was with Mr. Hogan. Wow. And we be, we become friends uh, after that. And uh, just about, I'd say just about every tournament that he and I played together, uh, if we got in early enough, we'd play a practice round together. So it was, a, it was a relationship for about eight years until he finally retired in, uh, in uh, 1969. Okay. Wow. That's impressive. Um now you mentioned the masters in what was it 62 that was yeah. that was very early on in your career correct cool it was yes i got an invitation after winning the australian open to come to the to augusta in 1961 and i turned it down uh i may be the only guy that's ever turned down an invitation <laughs> to augusta <laughs> but but i had no money you know uh i just I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford to come over. And and the other issue was, at that time, uh, I was under probation with the PGA of Australia, where where you had to play twelve months on the Australian tour to prove that you were good enough to make a living. Uh, I even had to write a letter to the Australian PGA to get permission to go to Augusta in April of nineteen sixty two because. I wouldn't have had my full year until May of 62. So it was a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. So your per- first professional event was the Masters? Correct. Oh, here in this country it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I I had I had I won a couple of tournaments uh, as on probation in Australia. Okay. Okay. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, I'd played in Australia but not not in the US tour. Yeah. Uh, and and now looking at your your record in majors is is very impressive. You've got, I mean, every except for one thing, <laughs> except for one little thing. Yeah. But you've got uh, a fourth place, a couple fourth place finishes in the Masters, tied for sixth at the PGA, sixth at the U.S. Open, fourth in the British. You've you always seem to be up there. Um, yeah. Is is there um one of those events that was maybe your favorite or, um, you know, maybe is, is there a moment where you feel like you wish you could have redone it and, and gotten over the hump? Well, Mike, Mike and I always ask a couple of questions to our guests that we have on our podcast. And one of them is if you had one shot to do over, if you had a mulligan, where would it be? And I know exactly where mine would be. It would be the second shot at the 11th hole at the Masters in 1968. I believe if my memory serves me correctly, uh, this was Saturday. I, I believe I had a four-shot lead going to 11 mm. and hit what I thought was the most perfect golf shot I've ever hit in my life at 11. I, you know, takes a bit of guts to go at the flag mm-hmm. there and I why I did it I don't know but I hit a beautiful shot in there but it failed to carry the downslope in front of the green it kicked a little bit left and ended up wiggling into the water oh, and no. uh, I left there uh, with an eight on the card okay and and I uh, I can always remember what Mr Hogan said you know if he hit the if he hit the ball on the green at 11 he pulled it Mm. Okay. <laughs> he never even tried to do that, huh? No, he never ever attempted. He didn't know there was a flag on the green. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously I've never played there before and that that whole 
Um, you know, they, over the years, I feel like they've been, been doing better, a better job on TV of capturing the topography of it. You know, I, I feel like yeah. I thought, you know, it was kind of a flattish hole, but it's, it's really a, an, an impressive hole. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's right at the, uh, the start of where where things like to happen, you know, on especially on the yeah. weekend of Augusta. So, um, okay, so I'm I'm curious a little bit more about your relationship with Ben Hogan. Then, um, you know, he's he's developed this. You know, he's he's a legend of our game, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Um, is there anything that you Correct. learned from him um, that you took into your your career? Uh, yeah, one thing, uh, the first, the very first time I played with him was at, a, like I said, at Augusta and we walked on the first tee and, uh, he, he pulled my driver out of the bag and he, he put it in his hands and he sort of wiggled the head a little bit and he said, uh, so you like playing with buggy whips, huh? <laughs> so, so. That was that was fairly impressive. So uh, I I immediately started to try to uh, you know tighten up the shaft a little bit, get it a little bit stronger. And I think every practice round we ever played after that, he'd he'd go to my bag on the first tee and he'd pull that driver out again and he'd put it in his hands and he'd give it a little wiggle and he'd say, oh, well, it's getting better, but it never ever got to where his was because." If any, uh, there are a lot of people that we've, uh, we often take Mr. Hogan's clubs when we, when we do things for some of the things, you know, like uh, we celebrated uh, at uh, Oakland Hills where unfortunately that clubhouse burnt down a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Yeah. But we, we, did a, we did a big thing there. And when we do that, uh, we're celebrating his victory there. And uh, we went up there and we took, take Hogan's, drivers with us so mm. he uh when we put him on the first tee and we allow anybody that hits that driver to you know not count that shot and play from there and we always say to everybody now see that tree over there on the left rough that's where you got to start aiming it because it's going to go to the right okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think i've only ever seen one player actually hit a hook off one of Mr. Hogan's clubs. Really? Okay. Yeah. And he very hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so were there any other players on tour that you were really close with? I mean, as, as I listened to your podcast, it appears like just every one of them you were fairly close with, or, or, you know, as, as I compare it almost to the modern game, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but from a fan's perspective, there seem to be a lot more close friendships than there are today that they're, they're more um, not isolated, but they're more about, you know, the, the competition and then leaving that away. And then, um, but your generation seems to be very, very close friends. Is that accurate? Yeah, that I'd say that's uh, definitely accurate, but you know, we must look at what has happened to the game in the last, 60 years uh, you know to play to play well I think I finished uh, fourth on the money list in 1965 and I had like six seconds and all the rest of it and I think I won $45,400 <laughs> so you know that's last place in some of the golf tournaments mm. today yeah. so uh, you know we we had a we had a bunch of friends. Uh, a lot of the times, there might be six guys staying at a motel together, and uh, one of one of the wives would be designated to go to the grocery store and pick up some steaks and all the rest of it. And we'd sit around and drink a beer and have dinner together at the, around the pool. Mm-hmm. But uh, you don't see much of that today, and uh, of course, the money is so so high today and they have you know they have their uh, their managers and their psychological guy and their health guy and uh, you know it's uh they got a family that you know they've created a, a helping family i guess mm-hmm. uh, a lot different you know i mean when we went to uh, when we went to practice it was probably 
having three beers instead of two. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So after your playing career, make the jump to designing golf courses, how did that come about? Um, how did, how did you make that jump? How did you have that opportunity? Was that something that you always wanted to do? Uh, no, not really. But I got in. I got interested in it. Uh, obviously, after that situation at the Lakes Golf Club, uh, recommending that they hire Robert Von Hagee, and then uh, when when he came, I didn't even talk to him. By the way, he didn't. He had no idea where this came from until he got a invitation to go to the Lakes Golf Club, and he said, "You know, why would you recommend me when you didn't even talk to me?" And I said, "Well, I, all I was interested in was what you were doing on the golf course." Uh, and he said, you know, that, that tells me a lot. He said, why don't, why don't you and I get involved together in the architectural business? He said, you know, you've got a lot of, uh, you've got a, you know, pretty big name in the game. And, uh, so that's how it happened. Yeah. So this might be like picking your favorite child, but, uh, do you have a favorite course that you designed? Oh dear! <laughs> Can't pick I, one of those. I see. I see Mike grinning there. He knows where I'm going with mm. this. No, to be quite to be quite honest with you, uh, it's Secession Golf Club in Beaufort, South Carolina, where where Mike was the uh, president of the club. Uh, I, I do love a golf course that I built in uh, St Andrews. Uh, Obviously, with the old course just three miles away from the one you built, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get a lot of uh, doesn't get a lot of uh, publicity. But I think it's a great golf course. It's about three miles out of town, on the south shore of the of the uh, inlet there, and it's. Uh, I think it's a great golf course. It's got a couple of fabulous holes right on the cliff, but uh, you know, it's right next to the old course. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, now secession is one that I've, I've heard of. And I, I remember I saw a, a video from the no laying up guys who went there and kind of reviewed it. And, um, I'm a, I'm a former club pro, like I said earlier. Um, and one of the courses I was at was Prairie Dunes in Hutchinson, Kansas. And I remember when I was watching the, the, the review of secession, it felt like it had a very similar charm that it was just very laid back all about the golf, very solid golf course, but um, there wasn't a lot of stuffiness around it. There's just a lot of people who love the game, get together and just have a good time. Um, is that, does that, do you feel like that's an accurate um, description of the course and the club? I do, but I'd like, I'd like Mike to uh, tell us what he thinks about this yeah. session. Obviously he's a member there and, uh, uh, I think it'd be it'd be interesting to because you know he's spoken to every member he knows every member. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I I've probably met him, but he's been a lot closer to all those mm-hmm. members than I have, and uh, I bet he's got something to say about it. Well, Bruce has been with it since uh, really uh, day one, you know, and and uh, I, I I've been involved since the course opened, not as a member but as a professional guest for a number of years. <laughs> but uh, was finally shamed into joining uh, several years ago. But anyway, it is. Uh, it was always set up to be a golfer's sort of club. Uh, and so they would tout the number of or percentage of members that were single-digit handicapped. That was okay. a priority early on. It is all about the golf. And many of our members uh, harken back to the old days before we had a clubhouse when it was just a caddy uh, trailer and pro shop trailer with a cooler of beer and sandwiches being transported across the bridge from Alvin Ord's for lunch between eight, eighteens, uh, simpler times. But, you know, we are here in the low country of South Carolina. The, the setting is absolutely stunning. Uh, there's not a more beautiful place in the world. Golf focused, no pretense. Uh, what we like to think is when you pull into that entrance, your worldly pressures and tensions leave your body. And you're there for three or four days to just let your hair down and just enjoy life and have fun and enjoy each other, quite frankly. That's another important aspect of it is the the collegial feeling that you have amongst the members and guests. And, uh, and it's a truly national club. There aren't many of those really in existence in the country. 
And so it's, it's sort of a destination club, meaning that we only have 50 members that are local members, meaning they can live within 100 miles of the club. And the other several hundred members that we have live all over the world and may come in once or twice a year. We've got some members may not show up for three years, but when they're here, they're here. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it a fairly unique place, I'm sure, because you've got people from all over. Uh, and that's that's one of the things I love about golf is it brings a lot of different people together. And um, so is now a secession, I assume, is the place where you two met, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. And so then yeah. uh, maybe, Mike, tell me about how the idea for this podcast came about originally. Well, as Bruce said, I, you know, I, I had some duties here at the club for a little over five years, and those duties ended at the end of two, uh, 2020. And I was doing some other work with a private equity firm, and we ended up selling our portfolio companies. So anyway, make a long story short, early in 2021, and this is before even COVID hit, I woke up one morning and said, man, I need something to do. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go crazy. And, uh, and so I started thinking about something, and I don't know. I'm not, I really don't remember how I, I came upon podcasting, but I had this idea of maybe doing a, a podcast series focused on UK golf, where I would go around and interview, uh, let's say we'd go to Presswick and we'd talk to their pro David Fleming and we'd talk to their secretary, Ken Goodwin. We'd talk to their historian and just tell the story of Prestwick from the perspective of what do you want to know if you're going to schedule your buddy's trip there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah what to eat, how to get there, where to stay, talk about the golf course, talk about the great history of Prestwick, and then go on to Troon and go on to wherever. And, and so that was idea number one. And then I got to thinking about Bruce and our relationship. And uh, <laughs> I had this idea originally about, well, I wonder if we could do maybe a storytelling sort of podcast featuring guys that played when woods were wood. That's what we used to say when we first got started, you know, uh, guys back in the day. And so uh, I called uh, Bruce and Bruce, what happened? Well, I thought he was mad. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the deal behind it was, you know, boy, I got all this from Mike's standpoint, I got all this time on my hands and you got all this time on your hands. Why don't we, uh, why don't we do something together? And he convinced me to, uh, by saying that, you know, you've had a great relationship with all those players and I'll bet, I'll bet you could get them to, to come on the podcast with us. And, and that's how we got started. And Mike's, Mike's better at the numbers than me, but, uh, he could, he will give you a good idea about the you know the people that we've uh, we've had on the podcast, the number of victories they've had. Uh, it's a it's a pretty impressive list, and and I got to tell you, the players have been just absolutely fabulous with us. They've allowed us, uh, you know, no no holes bar. But I'll say this: we we want. We want the players to tell the story, uh, and and they, they sure have. And right, Mike. Yeah, and, and to that point, Eric. Uh, you know, one thing that I I had to come to terms with early on was I realized this podcast was never going to be about me. In other words, nobody was going to tune in and listen to Mike Gonzalez. As a matter of fact, if you listen to our hundred and fifteen episodes, you will you won't hear my last name one time. Hmm. Okay. Now, Bruce will refer to me time to time where our guest is Mike, but I never say my name because I realize that if I'm talking more than 5% of the time, more as the facilitator of the conversation, I'm talking too much because hmm. it's all about Bruce and his buddies and the guys that play. Those are the stories that resonate with people. And so when we get done with an episode, and Bruce and I did this early on, we create a transcript with the transcripting service and it tells us percent of time talking. And we talked about what felt right. And, and for me, it was, you know, if I'm talking 5% of the time, if Bruce is talking 10 to 15% of the time and the guest is talking 80 or 85% of the time, that's probably a pretty good blend because what we're trying to do is tell their story in their voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from, you've got this really interesting, uh, and, goal with the podcast to talk to every male major championship winner. Was that something that 
was the goal from the beginning or did it kind of evolve that way that you're like, well, you know, that would be something kind of cool to, to accomplish. Yeah, I would say, Bruce, that we really didn't talk about that early on. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably fair to say, I'll speak for Bruce as well. We had no idea where this was going. No, no, we didn't. Actually, uh, to start it off, uh, Mike, Mike wanted to, you know, interview me sort of. And at the same time, I had set up, uh, I had set up to do podcasts with uh, Lanny Watkins and David Graham and also Lee Trevino. Uh, all of them being, uh, you know, living in Dallas and close by. And uh, that's that's basically how, how we got started. And then, you know, they, they were so good. We thought, well, maybe let's let's look at who's who's on the list. And we started going down the list. And uh, obviously Jack and Gary and Sutton and Watson and, you know, all of the guys have just been, they've been terrific for us. Yeah, yeah. So how many major champions are still alive today? Well, that's interesting that you asked. So there's, and, and let me just uh, say something about uh, our, our goals because I think our goals have sort of been moving and, and okay. our goals have become more aggressive over time. So I think uh, what we have been focused on, as you said, is, is trying to tell the story of every living major winner and we've been talking to guys. We've been talking to the men players because that's who Bruce knows and plays with quite well. Um, and the other goal we have is to talk to every living World Golf Hall of Fame member, right? Okay. Focus particularly on, again, the guys that played with Bruce and or that Bruce knows and uh, people that have influenced the game. So that would be players or guys like a Tim Fincham or a Dean Beeman, okay? So that's kind of where we, we are. But I don't think we want to limit ourselves to males. There are great female stories mm -hmm. to be told in the world of golf. Nobody up until just recently has been focused on that. Uh, Bruce and I realize that we've got a few years' worth of work queued up based on the goal we've set for ourselves, but we're certainly open to talk to people like Annika Sorenstam, for example. But to your question... Uh, in terms of major winners, there's 110 living major winners. Okay. And we've talked to, we've talked to 31 of them so far. Oh, wow. That's still a pretty good, uh, pretty good number you got already. Yeah. Yeah. And then same thing with, with hall of famers, there's 31 living male hall of famers, golf hall of famers that were players or major influences. And we've talked to almost half of, we've talked to 14 of those so far. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, that's already pretty impressive. So, um, so you've been doing this for about how long now? We started last uh, April. April, okay. I believe, wasn't it, Mike? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Second week of April last year, so it's not quite uh, not quite twelve yeah. months. We <laughs> we've done a lot of work. Yeah, that is a lot in in a, in a very small amount of time. Um, so is there yeah. is there an episode or a guest looking back over the last year that really uh, really surprised you? Um, maybe had some really great stories that that uh, that you enjoyed the most. My, I'm going to let Mike answer that question because you know, having lived with uh, most of the guys that we've had, you know, one time or another, uh, noth nothing that they said would surprise me. But maybe something <laughs> did with Mike. <laughs> I don't know about surprise so much. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's really hard to pick one if you ask for a favorite or so, something. You know, we've had some great, great conversations with, with guys. And, and, and by the way, some of these guys have spent upwards of three hours with us. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with Curtis Strange, we're going to end up with four or five episodes just from Curtis alone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just because they've got such an extensive body of work and they've got a lot of great stories. Uh, but... I don't know. I, I guess looking back, I do tell people this, that, that one of the most entertaining, I think, is, the, is one of the episodes we did with, with Tom Watson. It's Tom Watson part two. It, 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 it's what we started with with him. It, it occurred during Open Championship Week. And what we focused on is him talking about his five Open Championship wins mm -hmm. and his near miss at mm -hmm. Turnberry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the thing that I enjoyed about that, one, he's a 
wonderful storyteller. Quite, he's a smart guy, Stanford educated, quite articulate. So he's yeah. a great storyteller. But he does a really, really good Jack Nicholas impersonation. Oh, does he really? <laughs> <laughs> he sure does. I, I, yeah, I've got that one queued up. I haven't pulled that one up yet. But, uh, you know, the, that uh, open where he lost it, was it to sink? Was Stuart Sink who won that Stuart one? Stuart Sink, yes. that's right. In the yep. playoff, yeah. Um, the playoff. Man, that's that's one of the most memorable uh, majors I can uh, of my life. And it wasn't, you know, it's hardly, um, it's the story around it. It's, it's uh, you know, everyone was pulling for him. And uh, what was he, 60 years old at the time, maybe? Um, yeah, 59. He was 59. 59. Okay. Yeah, 59. Yeah. 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 Um, but that was just, uh, that was a fun event. And uh I'm I'm looking forward to pulling that one up. Um, is there anything with Jack? Tell me about your relationship with Jack Bruce, because um, you know he's known as the greatest there ever was. You know whether whether you want to debate him or Tiger, um, but uh, everyone wants to hear from. I'm sure he's got a lot of great stories. Yeah, he's uh, well. I've known uh, Jack since uh, May of. 1960. As a matter of fact, uh, I was still an amateur then, obviously. And I came over to play in the uh, second uh, Eisenhower Cup matches at Marion. And I came early and I went to Columbus, Ohio, and I stayed with the Nicholases for about five days. And then he and I drove to St. Louis and we played in the U.S. Amateur. Uh, of which neither of us won. Yeah. <laughs> Dean Beeman won, yeah. uh, and then we went. Uh, then we went to uh, to Philadelphia to, to Marion and uh, and and played in the Eisenhower second Eisenhower Cup matches, and we went to the White House together. and And he and I have stayed long and firm friends ever since. Uh, in 1963, just to give you an idea, I I, I had won a a big tournament in Australia and the company that uh, sponsored the tournament said, we'd like to send your wife and children with you to America next year. So they, so they set them up on a, on a travel arrangement to come over with me from like, uh, I think it was from March to September. And I went broke before September came along mm. and my wife and two children went to Columbus, Ohio, and stayed with the Nicholases for six weeks oh, wow. before they could get on before they could get on the boat to come back to Australia. So that that'll sort of give you an idea. Yeah. And of course, we play we played a lot of uh, exhibition. I was with McCormick as as well as Jack was, and then uh, we played a lot of exhibitions here in this country, and we played some in Australia, and uh, and we've thrown a steakhouse steak out of the window of a hotel and all sorts of things so uh, and when you listen when you listen to his podcast uh, uh you know he's he's never afraid to say what happened and, yeah uh, he'll, he'll relate that story to you yeah, too there's nothing off limits with the guys no we haven't we haven't had a soul that's backed off anything we've asked them yeah. they've been great yeah well as as i was kind of preparing to talk to you guys i was thinking back over our episodes and and you know you've got all these major winners and everything and we've got one uh common guest in mark kalkovecchia um he's our only um major champion on here and uh we've got some caddies that have won majors but uh it's just kind of fun to hear yours yours are uh much more in-depth conversations and i really like the perspective both of you bring out of your guests because of um, your experiences, but also just relating to them really well. So um, again, anyone who's listening, go check out the podcast. And um, I guess I'm wondering next is what first, where are you going next with the podcast? And is there a guest that you're really looking forward to having on? I'll let Bruce, well, I, I'll let Bruce <laughs> answer the last, the, the second part of that question. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've I've had a very close relationship to uh, to Lee Trevino, mm. but and I've said I've said this to Mike many times. Uh, trying to get Lee Trevino tied down uh, is a is a very very difficult thing. He he was all set to do it 
uh, as as our first podcast guy. And then one thing led to another and he couldn't get it done. And uh, uh, I know this is going to sound strange to people, but Lee Trevino does not do email. Lee Trevino has a flip phone and does not do text. And he never answers the phone when it rings. He likes to find out. He likes to find out who called him, and then he'll make a decision whether he'll call you back or not. But if uh, if some of Lee Trevino's friends are listening to this podcast, uh, they they might tell him that the devil is going to keep beating him until he comes and does a podcast with us. That's good. That's great. He he does. Uh, you know, everything I see with him, he just seems like he's the he's a very interesting and. Uh, joy-filled guy and 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 will definitely be fun to have on that episode so look forward to that mike is there one that you're looking forward to well that would be the obvious one because of his record and uh, when we get feedback from our listeners and i pose the question let's say on social media who would you most like to hear invariably it's lee trevino and so we know that 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 conversation is going to be a fun one um like Watson, like Nicholas, like player, they have such an extensive body of work. It's probably a multi, multi-part session to get through their life story because it's a, it's a, a lot of material to cover, but uh, uh, we've got a few coming up. And so for your listeners who may be familiar with the podcast, we have a lot of work in the can as, as they say. And so you know, talking to a lot of podcasters, they feel that weekly pressure to produce, right? And yeah. create. Yep. Uh, Bruce and I probably have 40 full episodes in the can waiting for release. Wow. Uh, our release schedule is every Thursday, we do a full episode and that's typically 40 minutes. And then we do, we do these things called short tracks, which are these just little snippets of best of little favorite stories may run three to five minutes. We do two of those a week. So we have uh, four guests that, that our, our listeners haven't heard yet, but we've already recorded those. And that was with Davis Love uh, third. Bruce and I just finished up with Davis yesterday. We've done Mark Brooks recently. We just did Bob Charles from New Zealand and Craig Stadler. So those are coming. Uh, and then we've got some, some ones scheduled uh, that we'll do in the near term, one of those being Al Guyberger, Mr. 59, and invariably, at least once a week, the phone will ring. It'll be Bruce Devlin. And Bruce says, okay, what are you doing on Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. the whatever, you know, because we got so-and-so coming. Great. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Do you guys even have time to play golf anymore now that you're doing all these? I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know about uh, you, Mr. Devlin, but I sure don't. I haven't. No, I've been struggling a little bit with a back problem, but I am uh, my... My two sons and my grandson and, and myself are heading to California to play Pebble Beach one morning. And then we're going to sort of sneak our way up to Napa and check some of the uh, nice vineyards out and then play the Cal Club and come back home. Uh, a five-day trip. Should be nice. Excellent. Excellent. That's good to hear. Um, well, Guys, the, the last thing, last question I always like to ask my guests um, is what's your favorite course that you've ever played? So, um, Mike, I'll start with you on that one. Well, that's a good one. I, I'm I, hard to pick one. You know, when I come off a golf course and, and the way I typically judge a golf course, I ask myself, could I play this golf course every day? And there's three that I could play every day. One is Secession. That's our home course. I live right across the street, so I'm a, I'm a bit biased. But there's two in the UK. Uh, one is a fairly typical answer, and that's the old course. And then the other would be Prestwick Golf Club. I love that place. I love because it's a it's a match play kind of course. It's very quirky, much like Makrahanish or Cruden Bay or North Berwick. Uh, very, very quirky, but something you could just play and enjoy the rest of your life if you played it every day. So... That would be my picks, I think. Okay. And Bruce? Well, I'm I'm sort of a little bit like Mike. You know, it's it's so hard to pick uh, to pick a, a a real favorite golf course. But uh, if I were to, I suppose let me pick one here. Uh, pick one in Europe, 
and uh, maybe pick one in Australia. Of course, okay. I mean, there are a lot of great golf courses in and around Sydney and Melbourne in particular, but uh, I do thoroughly enjoy playing Pebble Beach. I think that's a, you know, it's a great test of golf and it's a fun place to play. And, you know, like what Mike said, a little bit quirky, but it's a really is a great, enjoying, enjoyable round of golf. Uh, I can't leave the old course out. I, that was one of my early international trips and uh, I, now you talk about a quirky golf course. <laughs> it's, but it is so much fun to play. Uh, and then, I, I guess I'd have to, uh, I'd have to go with Royal Melbourne, okay. or, or New South Wales Golf Club in Sydney, Australia is really one of the great golf facilities in the world. Okay, excellent, excellent. Always love hearing those. Um, we've had we've had some guys mention. Uh, St. Andrews before, so that's a that seems like one that I got to get over there and play eventually. But um, so that's very cool to hear, um, guys. This has been a great time. I loved hearing all your stories, um, and I look forward to following the podcast and hearing more from from both of you and all your phenomenal guests. So thank you for joining us today. Well, make sure that make sure you tell all of your uh, folks that follow you to come. Come check out uh, for the good of the game. Uh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they'll enjoy hearing the stories about all the great players that we've had for the last fifty or sixty years. And uh, we thank you for taking your time today, Eric. Uh, we've enjoyed it, and I know Mike. Uh, Mike seems like he's enjoyed it too. I sure have, Eric. We appreciate uh, you having us on. And uh, good luck with your future podcasting. Thank you. You too. And I will tag everything in the show notes. So. Go check that out. Uh, the show is going to be linked in there. And uh, yeah, you're going to love it. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and rate The Looper wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Looper Podcast. Talk to you next time.